Well, the holiday times are upon us. Of course, the uh, week coming up here, a little bit later on, families will be uh, gathering to uh, enjoy uh, a Thanksgiving feast, uh, no doubt, many of them, and uh, wonderful times together with uh, family. And then, of course, following that, it will be uh, the other holiday, the Christmas time, when uh, families will be together. And uh, it is already a time when we think about being together with families that we enjoy those times of uh, exchanging uh, gifts. That's a tradition that many follow. And uh, uh, we are thinking about uh, what we will get for that uh, special person or persons and what will be just that, um, that perfect present? Uh, and you probably hear that kind of phrase used in advertisements. Are you looking for the perfect present? Are you looking for the, just that perfect gift for someone? Well, I'd like for us to think about the perfect present uh, this morning, but not in that, uh, uh, that literal secular sense of, uh, of presence, but I'd like for us to think of it in a, uh, in a spiritual sense as we talk about the perfect present from two verses in the Colossian epistle this morning. And I invite you and encourage you to turn to uh, the book of Colossians as we look at, at these verses and some of the surrounding verses that will uh, tell us what it is that is going to be required of us in order for that perfect present to, uh, to be presented at the proper time to God himself. That's right. Because that's exactly what these two verses are, are talking about as Paul, by inspiration, writes, first of all, in verse 22, in the body of his flesh. He's talking about the reconciliation that took place through Christ in his crucifixion, in the body of his flesh, through death. For what purpose, Paul? To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. That's the first verse we look at, verse 22 to present you, to present you. There's the perfect present. The perfect present is you. That is, the child of God, the follower of Christ, reconciled by Christ to God through his sacrifice, that we might ultimately become that perfect present, that we might ultimately be presented, how, Paul says, holy and blameless, and above reproach in his sight. Now, perfect does not indicate sinless, but perfect in the sense of complete and whole. Blameless does not indicate sinless, but without blame. Above reproach does not indicate sinlessness, but, but not capable of being reproached. And why? Why can we be that perfect present? Because in the body of his flesh, Jesus Christ has reconciled those who are his to God the Father. Now look at the next one, verse 28. That's another of our key verses. Paul here says, Him, meaning Christ, Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom. Notice the word that. That, in order that we may, and here it is again, present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. There it is again, the perfect present. The perfect present is the individual who has been reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ that ultimately he or she may be that perfect present given to God. Have you ever thought of yourself as being the perfect present 
that ultimately will be given to God? That's, that's a rather lofty thought, isn't it? That's, a, that's an exciting thought to think that I could be a present, as it were, given to God. The perfect present. But, as these two verses clearly indicate that that is the possibility, there are prerequisites that will have to be, have to be met before that ultimate presentation can take place. It is not the case that simply having been initially reconciled to God through the, through the body of his death, that is, through, through the body of his flesh, that is, through that sacrifice that he was willing to make, through that blood that he was willing to, be, uh, to have shed on Calvary, yes, we must initially be reconciled to God through that sacrifice. How? By a belief in the one who made that sacrifice, Jesus Christ, as the Christ, the Son of the living God, a belief that moves us forward to repent of every sin, to confess him freely as the Christ, and then, yes, to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. Those are the prerequisites that put us into the position of becoming that perfect present. But we are not there. You see, these two verses we have seen clearly point to the fact that the presentation is a future presentation. You will not be the perfect present the moment you come out of the baptistry, unless you died right then, then you would be, of course. But if you live very long, you're going to have to meet some other prerequisites that will enable you ultimately to be presented to God as that perfect present. And what are those prerequisites? They're right here in the same text that we're looking at in Colossians chapter 1. First of all, perception. Look at verse 9 of Colossians 1. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you. Now what had he heard? Well, verse 8 says, your love in the Spirit. In other words, your love in the Spirit, that is in the will of the Spirit, the will of the Spirit that's been given to you. We are thankful for that. We don't cease to pray for you since the day we heard about that and these wonderful qualities that you possess here, you Colossian Christians. But notice, it's not over yet. You're not the perfect present yet. It is our prayer that while you have this love in the Spirit, while you have heard and obeyed the truth, your faith, we've heard of your faith back up at verse 4, the hope that you have, all of these wonderful things, the fruit that you've been uh, bearing, verse 6, bringing forth fruit uh, since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. All of these things are wonderful. They are, they are great, but we are not finished with you, Paul says. You're not yet the perfect present unless you what? Continue to be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. In other words, there has to be a continuation of what we would call perception. To become the perfect present ultimately given to God, there has to be that perception of his will. And that perception of his will is not simply knowledge alone. Oh yes, knowledge is important. Until you have the facts, you can't apply them, can you? You've got to have the knowledge there. And notice something else here about the knowledge that he prays that they would have. Not that you would have a spattering of knowledge. Not that you would have uh, uh, some degree of knowledge of his will. But that you would be what? Filled with the knowledge of his will. That's something we need to ask ourselves. Am I filling myself up? 
as I move toward that time when I could be presented to God and will be presented to God, hopefully as the perfect present, am I filling up? Am I filling up my mind with the knowledge of his will? That has to be the case. That knowledge has to be there. And it is not an occasional reading of the scripture that will do it. It is not a daily reading necessarily of the scripture that will do it, as, as we've often said, but it is what? Knowledge, being filled with knowledge in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. There's the perception. There's the application. There's the living of the will with which we are filled. Filled with it, but living it as we are filled with it in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. Are we moving ever closer to the time when time is no more for us that we could be presented to God as the perfect present because we are being filled with the knowledge of his will in wisdom and spiritual understanding? And as we have often said, we can understand the will of the God. In the Ephesian letter, Paul said, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You can understand it. You must understand it, and you must be filled with it in order to ultimately be that perfect present. But there's a second prerequisite that we find in Colossians 1 and verse 10, and that is that we are going to have to live a life that is pleasing to God in order to be that perfect present presented to God at the judgment. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, listen to it, fully pleasing Him. Remember being filled with the knowledge of His will? Now we're fully pleasing Him. There's a lot of feeling going on here, isn't there? <laughs> a lot of feeling. It is not a question of nominal Christianity. It is not a question of a nominal approach to my life in order to be pleasing to God and to ultimately be that present that is given to him, as it were, in the final judgment. No, I must be fully pleasing him. How can I do that? You have it contained in this very verse. You get an insight into how you can be fully pleasing, first of all, by walking worthy of the Lord. And the Christian life, as you well know, is often described as a walk, isn't it? Uh, Old Testament uh, characters are described as walking with God. Enoch is the first one, Gen uh, Genesis 5, 24. Enoch walked with God. He was translated, didn't see death. Genesis 6, Noah walked with God. Walking with God. The Ephesian letter is filled with admonitions to walk with God. Here's one in the Colossian letter by the same author, Paul, that you may walk, what? Worthy of the Lord. To walk worthy of the Lord is to please Him fully. But how can I do that? Here it is, being fruitful in every good work, being fruitful. He tells you how to be pleasing. He tells you the life that is the pleasing life. The pleasing life is a fruitful life. Fruitful in what? A few things? No, fruitful in everything that I seek to do. Whatever my hand finds to do, as the Old Testament passage tells us, I do it with all my might. I seek to please God and to use my abilities and my talents to the fullest possible Extent, as we talked about in Bible class this morning, uh, one of the lessons from Amos, God can use us despite the fact that others may think we are not very usable. Amos was a country boy, uh, a preacher who was used by God without uh, educational credentials or a background that would have necessarily qualified him in the eyes of his peers. 
but God used him effectively. And we must be fruitful in every good work. And now we're back to knowledge again, increasing in the knowledge of God. That's a simple test to take, really, isn't it, for every one of us, as to whether or not we're increasing in the knowledge of God. Can we not know whether or not we're increasing in the knowledge of God? We can know that. How? Based upon how much time we're spending with the knowledge of God that is revealed to us in His Word. What kind of time am I spending with it, and what kind of quality time is being spent? As we've mentioned, being a daily Bible reader is a wonderful thing, but being a daily Bible reader will not necessarily bring about an increase in our knowledge of God through His Word. There has to be some study involved. There has to be some application of ourselves to the study of the will of God and the Word of God. And we need to take advantage of every opportunity that we have to be together with, with others in order to study the Word of God in our assemblies, increasing in the knowledge of God. You want to be the perfect present? You want to be presented to God, perfect, complete, and whole? Then a pleasing life is a prerequisite. And a pleasing life is a worthy walk with the Lord that constitutes pleasing Him fully. How? By being fruitful in what? Every good work, which incidentally says that work is involved in living the Christian life. It's got to be a productive life to be a pleasing life. And that means works are involved, despite what many try to tell us in the denominational world today. Every good work. There's another passage that says work is involved in being pleasing to God and increasing in the knowledge of God. A pleasing life. But there's something else. Verse 11, the power to be patient. We need power if we're going to be the perfect present that's given to God at the judgment. We need to have power. We need to be strengthened. We need strength. And we have that strength available to us. That's what Paul reminds these Colossians and thus reminds Christians for all time about strengthened with all might, strengthened with all might. You've got everything you need to have the power you need to become that perfect present. How? According to His glorious power. And where does that power reside? It gets us right back to this, doesn't it? For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The same writer Paul wrote elsewhere in Romans 1.16. It is God's power. What is? The gospel. Where is the gospel? In written form. Therefore, I must conclude that I have the power available to me to be strengthened with what? All might through what? A written word? Absolutely. Absolutely. It has that kind of power. I need nothing more in terms of my instruction and my strengthening than that which has as its source the written Word of God. Because that's the means the Holy Spirit has used to convey that will to me, and He's not going to do it in any other way. He's not going to strengthen me in some direct way. If I'm waiting for that, I'm waiting till time is no more, and it still won't come. I have to gain my power to be patient by what? Feeding upon this Word. And the power to be patient... Is just what he says. His glorious power, look at, look at that, for all patience. What's he saying? 
for all patients, in other words, unto or in the direction of patients. What does the Bible mean by patience here? It means steadfastness, being able to stand. I have everything I need. I have all the power that I need right here in this book to be strong enough to withstand whatever the devil throws at me, whatever life throws at me. I have at my disposal that which I need to deal with it successfully, effectively for all, in the direction of, toward the end, or the goal of being what? Patient. Power to be patient. That's what he says here. And long-suffering. But look at this. With what? Joy. To be long-suffering, to be patient, to stand up under trial with joy undergirding that? Absolutely. And we've talked about it before. Rejoice in the Lord most of the time. And again, I say rejoice. Is that what Paul wrote? Rejoice in the Lord some of the time. Rejoice in the Lord nine-tenths of the time. Rejoice in the Lord always. Always. And again, I say rejoice. Oh, yes, things uh, upset us. Things concern us. Things would seek to distract and ultimately destroy us. But we're strengthened if we'll feed upon the source of that strength with all might according to his glorious power that resides in this book, to produce what? Steadfastness, patience, and what else? Long-suffering, undergirded by what? Joy. Joy. And as we've often said, that doesn't mean we're never sorrowful, doesn't ever mean that we're ever uh, concerned in any way, doesn't mean that we don't shed tears. But even as we shed those tears, there's the undergirding, reinforcing joy that even those external circumstances, the sorrows that come, the challenges that present themselves cannot destroy if we don't allow them to do so. The power to be patient. And then look at verses 12 through 14. Paul says, giving thanks, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. We're partakers of what? The inheritance of the saints. What is that inheritance? Eternal life that waits those who are partakers, partakers of that inheritance that comes through what? Pardon, through the forgiveness of our sins. And we must understand and appreciate and give thanks through prayer to the one who has delivered us from the power of darkness and has made us partakers of an inheritance that supersedes, that excels any earthly inheritance that we could possibly contemplate. If it's a millions upon millions of dollars inheritance, it pales in comparison to the eternal inheritance that awaits those who are partakers. And that's the key. We've got to continue to be partakers. We've got to continue to be partakers of that inheritance. How? Through continuing to live that pleasing life we've talked about. And there's peace. There's peace that we appreciate. 
that comes through that, through that, being, uh, that relationship of being partakers. As partakers, we have pardon. As partakers, we have peace. It pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself. By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, here it is, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Pardon and peace. Those are two qualities that are absolutely essential to our becoming and being ultimately presented to God as the perfect present. And that pardon and peace, those pardon and peace qualities come through what? The inheritance of which we're partakers. As inheritance, as the partakers of the inheritance of the children in life. But, here's a key. Paul says, to maintain that peace, to ultimately enjoy the pardon that will ultimately allow us to be presented to God as the perfect present, we've got to persist. There has to be persistence. And that's verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. And so verse 22, one of our key verses that speaks of the body of his flesh that reconciled us through his death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Verse 22 is followed by this one which says, if, if, that's the key, to present you holy if, to, be, to make you the perfect present to God if, what? If you continue in the faith. And what is the faith? The faith is the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It is Christianity. It is the faith versus the law of Moses in Galatians chapter 3. It is the system of doctrine. It is the pattern of sound words to which all of us must be faithful persistently in order to be that perfect present. And let me ask you something. If you cannot be moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, why does Paul bring the subject up? Again, it's one of the hundreds, literally hundreds of passages in the New Testament that remind the child of God that if you are going to ultimately be that perfect present given to God at the judgment, you are going to have to remain faithful and there is the distinct possibility that you will not. The distinct possibility exists that you will not, that I will not. Because Paul introduces here very clearly as he does and as others of the New Testament writers introduce the subject that we can be moved away from the hope of the gospel. The hope, what is hope? Desire and expectation. What is the hope of the gospel? Heaven. If I can be moved away from the hope of the gospel, I can be moved away from my desire and expectation to go to heaven. I can lose it. And then I'm anything but the perfect present. I'm going to have to be persistent. Now, look again at some key verses, including the two with which we began. 
Paul writes, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, he's writing to these Colossians, yet now he has reconciled. You were what? You were wicked in your works. Now he has reconciled you, how? Again, one of our key verses, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death, here it is, in order to, what? Present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Now, verse 28, and followed by verse 29, him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that for the purpose of, ultimately, that we might what? Present every man, every man, that's our goal, that every individual, every brother and sister, ultimately be presented perfect in Christ Jesus. And then he adds, to this end, for this purpose, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily works in me mightily. There's the urgency with which Paul accepted his God-given task, his privilege of working in order to be able to ultimately present every convert that he had had the privilege and blessing to reach with the gospel, to be able to stand beside them in the judgment and to hear them approved of God and Christ to see them, as it were, presented as the perfect present, holy and blameless. And you remember when we studied 1 Thessalonians, there's a passage in 1 Thessalonians that reminds us of what Paul is, is saying here concerning his goal, striving to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Remember 1 Thessalonians 2, verse, 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you, you Thessalonians, you Christians? Listen to it. In the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming. For you are our glory and joy. What's he saying? I want to be there. I want to be there when you are presented to God in Christ as the perfect present. That will be my glory and joy to see you saved in that day. We can be that perfect present. But there's only one place in which to achieve that goal. And there's another passage that makes that abundantly clear, that the place in which we achieve that goal, and without being there, it cannot be achieved, and that is the church of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because in another of his letters in the Ephesian epistle, in verses 26 and 27 of chapter 5, speaking of the church, Paul says this, that he might sanctify and cleanse her, the church, with the washing of water by the word. That's baptism. Clearly, that's baptism. That he might present her to himself, a glorious church. When is that? At the judgment. Not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, 
but that she should be the perfect present, that she should be holy and without blemish. You see, you can't be the perfect present without being in the Lord's kingdom, the church. That's what this verse makes abundantly clear. Because the church is going to be presented to the Lord as a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. And to be a part of that presentation, I've got to be a part of that church, the one for which Jesus shed his precious blood. And without being in that kingdom, without being in that church, I have no hope, no possibility whatsoever of ultimately being that perfect present. And so all that remains is for me to know what I need to do to be in that church, added to that church, and then once there, to meet the prerequisites for the presentation that we've already outlined. And we've already outlined that which places us into that kingdom, the church. Believe with all of your heart that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John eight twenty four. Believe that I am He or die in your sins. Repent or perish. Luke thirteen three. Jesus said, Confess me before men and I will confess you before my Father in heaven. Matthew ten thirty two. And yes, he who believes and is baptized will be saved that he might sanctify and cleanse her with what? The washing of water. The washing of water. He who believes and is baptized. That's the washing of water. Will be saved. The washing of water by the word means what? Baptism in accordance with what the word has told me to do, which is to be baptized. If you've been baptized into Christ this morning, I can guarantee you, you weren't baptized into Christ without this. The washing of water came by the word. Somehow you heard that the word taught you that you had to be washed in water to be reached and cleansed by his blood. That's the washing of water, baptism by the teaching of the word. And once you've done that, he adds you to that kingdom, the church that he plans to present to himself without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish, the perfect present. And you can be a part of that perfect present. If you'll obey the gospel, if you haven't done that, or if you'll come home to your first love as a wayward child of God, if that's your need as we stand together to sing.